Michelangelo. <laughs> Michelangelo. It seems naive in yeah. some degree to me, though it does stick with you. In the room, the women come and go talking of Michel or Michelangelo. That's a great-ass line, even if you don't know, understand what it means. I mean, it's kind of a great-ass line. Like, if you were, like, making an advertising jingle to sell Michelangelo statues. In the room, women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. <laughs> yeah. Then again, people are going to be like, well, there's meaning behind that. And I'm sure that there is. Yeah, but... the traditional approach is T.S. Eliot is fucking genius. Everything is perfect. So how dare you question it? It must have meaning. Figure it out. A great, a great deal of shit talking and naysaying there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we need more. Okay, nasty enough. I am inside someone who hates me. I look out from his eyes, smell what foul tunes come into his breath. Love his wretched women. Slits in the metal for sun, where my eyes sit turning at the cool air. The glance of light or hard flesh rubbed against me. A woman, a man, without shadow or voice or meaning. This is the enclosure, flesh where innocence is a weapon, an abstraction, touch, not mine or yours if you are the soul I had and abandoned when I was blind and had my enemies carry me as a dead man. If he is beautiful or pitied, it can be pain, as now, as all his flesh hurts me. Welcome to the pointless century where we discuss history culture and politics in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. This week, the void that is poetry will consider the poems that start and end the pointless century. T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, written in 1910 and published in 1915, and of Mary Baraka's Somebody Blew Up America, published in 2002. On our journey, we'll also look at Mary Baraka's An Agony As Now, from 1964, and Dope. We'll be thinking about meaning, meaninglessness, the self, the culture, the dream outside of history, and being trapped inside someone who hates us. We'll talk about race, class, white hot metal, and poison gas. As always, the First World War and the Global War on Terror, and inevitably, fascism. Every time I cut one of these episodes together, which takes no small amount of effort on my part, I get to the point where I realize that they seem horribly outdated given the audio was recorded two months or more ago. If you aren't paying attention to the news, 
please be aware that the Department of Homeland Security has engaged in a full-scale fascist crackdown in the city of Portland. Donate to relevant bail funds in support of the ongoing insurrection and support the ACLU and eventually the Anarchist Black Cross as appropriate. Stay safe out there. You heard Baraka reading dope, right? Yeah. And you can see the way that he makes all kinds of references to what's going on in politics, even to the extent that I can look at that and be like, this isn't written in 09. This is a Carter administration poem because he's ripping the Carter administration. If he were writing it in 09, he'd be ripping on Obama, probably. Similarly, in 02, uh, with Somebody Blew Up America, you can see him calling out specific people in the George W. Bush administration. And even just the attitude of it, you, you get that feeling of, uh, he either wrote this very soon after the September 11th attacks and kept it in his back pocket, until he was, he became poet laureate, or he's writing it with that attitude that it's still a very fresh wound. This is T. S. Eliot writing about poetry and the social function of poetry in 1945. People sometimes are suspicious of any poetry that has a particular purpose. Poetry in which the poet is advocating social, moral, political, or religious views. And they are much more inclined to say that it isn't poetry when they dislike the particular views. Just as other people often think that something is real poetry because it happens to express a point of view which they like. I should say that the question of whether the poet is using his poetry to advocate or attack a social attitude does not matter. Bad verse may have a transient vogue when the poet is reflecting a popular attitude of the moment. But real poetry survives not only a change of popular opinion, but the complete extinction of interest in the issues with which the poet was passionately concerned. In some ways, it's a pretty standard definition of what makes a classic, but I think it is a good jumping off point to figure out what we're supposed to think of these poems. That's a good definition of a classic, but I also think what Mary is doing is classic in a different way. He's making a statement in a certain sphere, multiple spheres actually, in the political sphere and and in his experiences from his background and how it influences his writing. That also can be timeless, but it's in a different way. I would have to totally agree with that because I love Somebody Blew Up America. I love it. Um, with my political views I'm like oh hell yeah this is my shit but I like how repetitive it is it is repetitive nobody cannot say that Um, I think it really drives it in and other people are going to be like it's so long and repetitive it's stupid you're just shitting on everybody I really like it and I have to agree with uh, T.S. Eliot I think it's brilliant and it's great poetry (laughs) because it does side so much with my political ideology. But in that agreement with T.S. Eliot, you're agreeing that he's right, but you would inevitably then be opposed to his view of poetry, because ultimately his perspective is to say that, well, if you're that kind of person, then you have a sort of shallow appreciation of poetry because you're just looking for things that you agree with. Well, yeah, but I'm also a college student that's being exposed to the world where I can truly express my opinions and develop my own ideas. So if I find something that 
I agree with to some degree. I will side with it. I really like social and humanitarian issues and this is it. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, and so, that's what Baraka is always engaging with the issues of his day, whether that's like in the very immediate, specific, literal sense, or whether that's in a more abstract sense. I think one of the interesting things about a relatively early poem of his, like In Agony As Now, is it's obviously still dealing with issues of race and racism, but it's doing it in that sort of more abstract, more artistic way, if yeah. you will. Elliot's point is that Baraka actually isn't any good as a writer unless somebody would care about this poem a million years from now, not knowing anything about the George W. Bush administration or September 11th. Comparing the two poems, I think Somebody Blew Up America would do that better than the other ones. I suspect written in 2001, but first yeah. revealed when he was appointed Poet Laureate of New Jersey in July of 2002, leading to a scandal over whether you could fire a Poet Laureate. and. <laughs> Having discovered that you can't fire a poet laureate, the state of New Jersey abolished the position in order to remove him. What Eliot's really arguing for is an idea of great poetry outside of time. Another way of putting it is you ask the question, well, why do you write poetry? And Amiri Baraka is writing poetry for himself and for African-American culture and for geopolitical commentary right then, right there, right now. I'm going to say something and you're going to hear me. He's hired to be the Poet Laureate of New Jersey in July of 02. And that same month, he reads this poem. You asked for Amiri Baraka, you got Amiri Baraka. Amiri Baraka's purpose as a poet is if I'm going to rise to the level where I can be poet laureate of my home state, then I'm going to show you that poetry can do something <laughs> by forcing a governmental crisis over this poem. But that's right here. That's right now. That's not T.S. Eliot writing this internally twisted seether in 1910 and getting Ezra Pound, the puff daddy of his age, to promote him to the extent that Harriet Monroe's eventually like, okay, I, maybe I don't get it, but somebody's going to like it. And five years later, they get into Poetry Magazine. And then later on, we get this story about how modernist poetry comes to be that involves this poem that was so far ahead of its time that everybody's like, what? What's that? Oh, cool. And it it becomes a poem that is eternal out of the context of it being written in that pre-war 1910 period, out of the context of even like, who is Prufrock? What is his problem? Like, what is going on here? Just as a poem forever. Because Eliot's idea of, well, what is a great poem and what is a great poet? It needs to be immortal. He has different motivations. I still think that Amiri Baraka achieves that. But he's he, just he does, how but how and why? It's a completely different form from what T.S. Eliot is doing. I would say it's immortal because it is a primary source of this day and age that changed the way America functioned. It gives a snapshot into the anger and the emotions of a part of the American public. 
what we see here is a distinction between, in some ways, modernism and postmodernism, but also it's the distinction between the function of art for a dominant culture and the function of art for a minority culture or for a dispossessed culture or repressed or oppressed culture, or however we want to describe. If we think of how we might define modernism, and it's not the only definition of modernism, but it's one thing that we see very strongly in theories of modernist art, the text as somehow separate from the world. The idea of a freestanding text that doesn't need to necessarily engage with anything else. It has value on its own, independent of other events, independent of history. Perhaps it might reference other texts, as we see Eliot using this epigraph from Dante. And it's kind of a myth. It's a, an idea that really the new critics use in the 40s and 50s, and they're promoting this very strongly. Really, they're at war with the American studies folks like, well, inevitably myself, right? <laughs> uh, who are saying that like, no, everything is in historical context and you have to judge things that way. Ultimately, they lose that battle because by the time you get into like the 70s and the 80s, not only do you have more people in the university who aren't of that dominant white male culture who say, well, we can't like pretend like history isn't happening, but also at the same time, the art has changed. And that's a shift towards postmodernism. First off, modernism was always situated within history. That's what we do with our research. We're always thinking about what is this text saying historically? But by the time you get to postmodernism, it gets really obvious. It gets impossible to pull the text away from the historical context, even when it's playing with history. That toying with the history is also a way of showing the connections to history. I'm reminded of one of my profs, Samuel R. Delaney, and I'm not sure if he was riffing on something that somebody else said. He probably was, but it was just such an elegant way of explaining it. He wrote something to the effect of the white male perspective in literature is the dream outside of history that nobody else really has the privilege of accessing. It's easy for somebody like T.S. Eliot, and indeed most of the canonical figures in literature and poetry before him, to say, oh, well, we can see a great work of literature as something that stands outside history because they always had the privilege to imagine themselves outside history. But that makes no sense for somebody like Amiri Baraka writing in 1964. A black nationalist writing in 1964 is going to have an idea about the world that is very much situated in history. And even a poem like An Agony As Now, which to me still looks very modernist in many ways, has to be understood within historical context. Otherwise, you're only getting half the reading. By the time you get into things like dope, with all those references, say, to the Carter administration, to international politics, etc., where Baraka is no longer identifying as a black nationalist, but now calling himself a third world Marxist. He's seeing connections and struggles all over the world against capitalism writ large. You can't understand that without understanding the history of the moment. And then so it's easy for people in the 21st century, and especially young people, and especially, you know, women in college, to come to a work like Somebody Blew Up America and say like, well, no, it is immortal. 
you just need to like look at that page in the textbook that explains what September 11th was. And then it's immortal. Then it's a primary source that lets you learn about the kind of perspective that somebody like Baraka would have on that event. And then it just seems like T.S. Eliot is being silly to say, I have to look at that page in the textbook. That's so annoying. For you, September 11th is something that you've heard about your whole life, but that not mm-hmm. something that you lived through. Right. We little babies. But it's something that's presumably always sort of been a shadow over your life because it's been a shadow over American politics for all of the 21st century that we've seen. Mm-hmm. We don't know anything besides that. For someone older like me, it's easy to come at this and be like, well, you don't know, you don't know how much changed about this country, right? after September 11th. But but also a lot of things in some ways have really just stayed the same. They've just become more intense. It's easier for us to compare before and after with the 2016 election. Yes, Like yes. how things became so much more intense. It's a good equivalent example where like the people who were paying attention to issues in politics and problems that we were refusing to solve said oh no 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 don't go don't 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 go through that door don't go through that door and then they went through that door Um, (laughs) which is like every war ever right (laughs) behind that door is nothing but dead bodies But you still opened it up. And so similarly in the 2016 election, we see that same thing where a huge portion of the population is like, this is not us. And then you're sitting there with your history book being like, y'all, this is us. (laughs) An old white dude that wants to control people. You just keep going through that same door, you know. History doesn't repeat Literally. I feel like I'm not the only one when I say I've been in four years of disbelief. Yeah, but that yeah. is, I would say, a very white perspective on yeah, it on, is. on the election. Yeah. I remember having a very specific conversation with a Pakistani-American friend of mine who straight up predicted Donald Trump is going to win this election. And I was like, you've only seen Texas and Virginia. There's so much more to America than Texas and Virginia. And she was like, nah, you haven't seen... Americans the way that I've seen Americans. I'm like, granted, you know, we have dropped an alarming number of bombs on and near your country. Granted, uh, people are raging racists to you in your face all day, every day. But I like to have hope. And no, she did not have that kind of hope that I had. Um, And, you know, she was right. Privileged people have the ability to hope more because they don't have to deal with the actual consequences. Yes. Yeah. We sometimes, you know, we tell ourselves stories that like, oh, it isn't as bad as it could be or something like that. And then those, Mm -hmm. you know, that that basically just, uh, I guess, allows you to not go completely insane while they're locking people up in literal concentration camps. Yeah. I do not think that it's wrong to say that somebody blew up America is in its own way a poem for all time. It is easier for us to say such a thing because of the era that we live in, because of the very different academic culture that we've come up through than the one that T.S. Eliot came up through. T.S. Eliot's attitude towards what makes great art or great poetry, though, does still persist on a certain level, especially with older folks and especially with people who are interested in like pure aesthetics rather than things like 
the social value of a poem or the historical value of a poem. And also it's worth mentioning that these aren't like cut and dry. A lot of the poets that Eliot is fascinated by, you know, we're writing poems that were of their age and he's just arguing that, well, they persist even if you don't understand those things. It is sort of a cop-out though, to just say like, oh, well, you don't need to understand the context to understand this poem, but like, actually you, you would probably understand it a lot better if you did. Which to your taste was the best poem? Which did you like the most? Well, I think y'all knowing me know which one is my favorite. Um, especially what I talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody blew up America, but I also am highly politically involved with social justice. I, I took a semester class um, about African-American history since the Civil War, and I just finished that up last night. So, like, that's heavily on my mind. What Baraka's trying to do in that poem is to say, hey, you thought this was a big deal? I'm going to school you and and show you why, actually, in the grand scheme of things, this is a drop in the bucket. He embeds in there, maybe not all of African-American history, maybe not all of American history, maybe not all of of European history, but but all the atrocities that this is within the context of the way that he sees it. Anna, what was your favorite? It's definitely not T.S. Eliot. (laughs) I will force you to look at it more closely later on, but I I was expecting this answer. It's really very basic that like the older things get, the less people are interested in them. I still think it has its merits, but to me, the tone of dope, I just love how he just completely goes after it. And hearing him read it is fantastic. You yeah. really get a feel for what he's trying to do with it. And I was very interested in the way that he's not reading those parentheticals, like the screams. That's just like mm-hmm. his stage direction. He did yeah. write drama as well as writing poetry and nonfiction. I think he might've even written a bit of fiction. He takes those parentheticals as sort of instructions as he delivers yeah. the performance of the poem. Yeah. And that is just fantastic. I definitely think in order to get the full experience of that poem, you have to listen to him. Oh, yeah. Read it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm also a simpleton, so I like stuff that's easy to understand. So, But you're also a historian. So yeah. like your idea of what's easy to understand is different than other people's idea of what's easy to understand. My perspective is the internet age is really the golden age for elusive poetry. When I was a poetry editor back at William and Mary, you know, sometimes people would send things in, there'd be like a footnote on something. I'd be like, well, get this footnote out of here. Like, you don't need to explain. And also I had no patience whatsoever for somebody being like, well, I don't know what this word means. Or what is this person referring to? Like, dude, you have a phone. Like, use your pocket computer to go to Wikipedia. And if you didn't know, like, what obscure political figure this person is referring to, look it up and then you'll know what it means. In Eliot's day, I can understand him being like, I want the poem to stand alone. But right now, with our phones in our pockets where we can look anything up, go with it. In the future, the robot archaeologists, to which I try to give periodic shout outs, will not be confused about any of Amiri Baraka's political references. They will be confused about why in the hell the women are talking about Michelangelo in T.S. Eliot's Love Song of Jail for Prudera. 
Yeah. And that to them will look hackish, whereas Baraka's references to history, references to contemporary politics will be like, well, of course, he's writing it in 2002. Yeah, he's ripping on the Secretary of Defense. He's ripping on Colin Powell. He's ripping on Condoleezza Rice. It's, it's really obvious what he's doing. I'm torn here because I am very much of the belief that everything is always situated within history. Everything is always situated within politics. Everything is always situated within culture. And I suspect that whether he knows it or not, T.S. Eliot's whole, like, no, the text has to sit outside of current events is actually him attempting to cover over and give himself an excuse for the fact that he was a reactionary right winger whose idea of good politics was if we could just rewind 200 years we'd all be better off i mean i don't even really feel like the hypostatized white cis het male of 1910 through 1930 should even have been playing ball with that concept it's it only makes sense in that same way as the like Republican Disney World has to make up fantasies about what the past was. It's just that vague notion that something's wrong now, which points for getting that part correct. So he cleans his politics out of a lot of his poems, not all of them, and then says that we should have the poetry that can rise above the circumstances from which it was produced because that allows cover for being a nasty right winger like him or like Pound. And there are things in their politics that I think probably make at least a little bit of sense. Like, yeah, you know, like, uh, shit was pretty hard uh, between uh, 1914 and 1945. Okay, I'll give you that one. <laughs> um, but, but Pound becomes a literal fascist. T.S. Eliot doesn't quite go that far, but he, in certain cases, comes pretty close. So there's a lot to not like there. And then you can say to yourself, it's nice that we didn't get more of his politics and his poetry because we're we're Pound is starting to lay down more politics in the cantos. And it's like, here's a poem about how cool Mussolini is. Like, ah, oh, dude, did you have to write that one? Uh, <laughs> but, but then again, we know, you know, and on the other hand, we have Amiri Baraka, who's just like going to wear it all in his sleeve. Like say, this is where I am. This is what I believe. And we can see his political perspective evolving over the course of his career too. There's a, there's a tremendous honesty to that. Even yeah. if we go back and say, okay, well, this is a bit misogynistic. Even if we can say, oh, well, this is homophobic. Even if we can go back and say like, well, is this anti-Semitic? Which we want to get to eventually. The question of whether somebody blew up America is indeed an anti-Semitic poem as it was accused of being. Even if we can say that, we can also say, you know, Barack is being honest with us and he's not necessarily saying that like I'm an arbiter of immortal truth. He's saying, well, this is where I'm at. This is how I feel. I'm going to write it down and you're going to know about it. You know that Amiri Baraka is not going to try and fool you about his political positions. There's something really respectable about that. There's something that I admire so much about his willingness to, at the top of his game, not sell out. To at the top of his game, be like, okay, poet laureate of New Jersey, I could take it or leave it. New Jersey, can you handle this poem? Um, they couldn't handle it. Yeah. But at the same time, I have to be this very old school atavistic culture head because I grew up in the 90s. I don't know what we would say. Like the formative years of my education were, I suppose, between Kurt Cobain's suicide and Hurricane Katrina. And in that period, a lot of the people who were teaching literature, even if they were leftists, even if they were 
interested in historicizing everything still had come up through a lot of that old school, new critical, let's just look at the text, let's just interpret it from a close reading. And I still find myself doing a lot of that. I think there's a lot of value to it. And I think that it has inflected my judgments and it leads me to say something like an agony as now is to my taste, the best out of the bunch. It might not be the one that gets me the most amped up. It might not be the one that I most frequently teach, but it is the one that I feel is in a certain sense, perfect. And of course the, you know, it could never be actually perfect, but, yeah. but it's the, it's the one that, that is exactly what it needs to be and does exactly what it needs to do and has that wonderful immortal quality of being able to mean different things for different readers in different eras that Elliot and a lot of those old school folks always were kind of into. The one I teach the most frequently is the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And it's always a divisive text. Some of the students are fascinated by it and others are like, what in the blazes is going on here? <laughs> I am inside someone who hates me. I look out from his eyes, smell what foul tunes come into his breath, love his wretched women. Slits in the metal for sun, where my eyes sit turning at the cool air, the glance of light or hard flesh rubbed against me, a woman, a man, without shadow or voice or meaning. This is the enclosure, flesh where innocence is a weapon an abstraction, touch, not mine or yours if you are the soul I had and abandoned when I was blind and had my enemies carry me as a dead man. If he is beautiful or pitied, it can be pain, as now, as all his flesh hurts me. It can be that, or pain, as when she ran from me into the forest, or pain, the mind silver spiraled, world against the sun higher than even old men thought God would be, or pain, and the other, the yes. Inside his books, his fingers, they are withered yellow flowers and were never beautiful. The yes, you will, lost soul, say, beauty, beauty practiced as the tree, the slow river, a white sun in its wet sentences. Or the cold men in their gale, ecstasy, flesh or soul. The yes, their robes blown, their bowls empty. They chant at my heels, not at yours. Flesh or soul as corrupt, where the answer moves too quickly, where the God is a self after all. Cold air blown through narrow blind eyes, flesh, white hot metal glows as the day with its sun. It is a human love I live inside, a bony skeleton you recognize as words or simple feeling. But it has no feeling. As the metal is hot, it is not given to love. It burns the thing inside it, and that thing screams. Thoughts? How can you have thoughts on that? You just go, wow. And then in order to understand it, you have to read it multiple times. Mm -hmm. I'm not even going to try to comment on it because I think if I comment on it without 
considering it fully, that would do a disservice to his work. We might say it's an intimidating poem. It makes you feel like, oh, I can't possibly get that. It, it's a poem, like you said, that just makes you want to reread it mm-hmm. to figure it out. But I think that when we confront a poem like this, we can also allow for it to be an opportunity to say, it doesn't have to just mean one thing. And one of the reasons why, to me, it's a great poem is because we can come to this poem at different points in our life and gain different things from it, whether it touches off something in our own head about what's going on with ourselves and our relationship to the world, whether we study Amiri Baraka's experience and think about what he's trying to say about his life, whether we think about it in terms of African-American history, whether we think about it in terms of the state of the civil rights movement in 1964, whether we think about it in terms of Amiri Baraka turning away from the broader poetic culture to identify as a black nationalist and say, well, I'm gonna do my own thing now. Any one of those different types of readings that we might get are all valuable. They may be different readings, but they're all valuable. So Mm -hmm. I would like to encourage you to not be quite so intimidated, even if it is like obviously a knockout poem. When I read it the first time, my very unpolished thoughts I wrote down, it attacks common labels associated with white privilege or art. It cannot love because it's the burning condition to a whole people. And then I wrote down, is this changing or will it always remain? So the white sun and the white hot metal are the state of white culture and white poetry. It's not love, it's suffering. It's not beauty. Uh Yeah. In a certain way, then you can read it as a response to the sentiment about great poetry that we get from T.S. Eliot. Baraka is saying, no, it's not a universal. No, it's not love. No, it's not beauty. No, it's not whatever those big words that you thought it was. It's actually pain. It's actually suffering or pain or pain or pain or pain. The stanzas sort of run The line breaks are irregular in a way where one line will run into the next, run into the next. And as you read it, you can choose to just run them or you can hang on that last word a little, depending on sort of your taste for reading the poem. Mm -hmm. But that opening section, I am inside someone who hates me. I look out from his eyes. One of the most intense and direct expressions of what W.E.B. Du Bois would have called the double consciousness. Amiri Baraka is expressing the feeling of being a black man in a majority white culture. I am inside someone who hates me. I look out from his eyes. You're inside the culture and the culture is another self that restricts you. And looking out from that is actually seeing through the eyes of the other. It's as W.B. Du Bois would would point out, that you're always thinking about how you perceived, not unlike the experience of being a woman in a male-dominated culture, right? Mm -hmm. Right. The central image of the poem, the skin is a metal cage. The Mm -hmm. skin is like a hard flesh of metal, and it's white hot in the sun. It encases you, you're looking out from it, but you can't touch it. If you touch it, you burn yourself. Just incredibly powerful as an image. And then also, of course, as a sort of symbolization or as a metaphor for that experience of being 
African-American. And yet as a metaphor, we can then extend it to any number of other things that it could stand in for if we want to read it, as I said, potentially the experience of say being a woman or say being queer, being any sort of marginalized group where you're always pressing up against the judgment of yourself. What stands out to you is worth commenting on, Rachel? This is the enclosure in the third stanza. It can be pain. It can be that or pain. And when she ran from me into that forest, just what you were talking about earlier with the enclosure, the the prison, that because it's so true. But I didn't immediately get that. You the, didn't immediately get that it was a poem about race is what you're saying? I was just confused by it. I got that it was about race, but I couldn't quite tell. Like, I thought he was in a suit of armor. Well, you like, could think of it that Like, his skin was so way. tough, yeah. he had to deal with everything. And that's yeah. why, and because of all the scrutiny with his armor, he couldn't touch it, otherwise he would burn. Yeah. But it, in actuality, it's his skin. Well, but it could be his armor, too. It can be both. Yeah. If we think about the experience of being part of an oppressed group, a lot of that experience is also the experience of developing a tough skin, of developing an armor, right? Yeah. So I think that both meanings certainly can be there and probably should be there. But that the armor is something that maybe you put on to protect you, and then it also is something that hurts you. This is the enclosure flesh where innocence is a weapon. Yeah. An abstraction touch. There's, there's an interplay in this poem between the abstract and the concrete. And every time it goes back down to the concrete, it gets more confusing. You'd think that the abstraction would be confusing, but the concrete is what to me is most confusing. So in a certain sense, it's a poem about abstraction. It starts on a register that is in some ways very abstract in so far as symbolism can be abstract. And we might eventually get here to some consideration of symbolism versus imagism and stuff like that. But that highly symbolic use of the metal suit of the armor of the enclosure then falls down into when I was blind and had my enemies carry me as a dead man, or as when she ran from me into that forest. From that extremely abstract metaphorical register, then falling down into a scene, like a description, like I was blind and my enemies carried me. What? Who? She ran from me into that forest. And I love the use of that. And I'll do this in my own poetry sometimes. Instead of writing the right? That. And immediately, it's like you're pointing to something. You've made it much more specific than it was. When really, it would mean the same thing, strictly speaking, but you say that forest instead of the forest. It's like, oh, that one I'm remembering right now that you should be remembering too. And you're like, well, I'm not in on this. I don't know what's going on, which maybe is the point. It's probably the point. And there's definitely a game being played here, which is in some ways a very modernist game of, I'm not going to really explain things to you. You're just going to have to piece it together from fragments, however best suits you. And we see that in Proof Rock as well. That felt like a couple of classes this semester. (laughs) (laughs) I'm being serious. Yeah, yeah. But I think that another way of reading that is it's also a way of saying you hip white American reader don't get to (laughs) be in on what I'm thinking of. There is, I mean, we see it in his later work as well. Even when he's reading dope to that crowd, that's definitely an in-group crowd in that performance. Yeah. Yeah. But you see something like what he's doing with Somebody Blew Up America, and that's definitely like 
oh, you thought I was going to be the poet laureate of New Jersey. Well, I am the poet laureate of New Jersey, but maybe the people who I'm writing for in New Jersey are not the people who you think of as New Jerseyans. I fully think that he was trying to stick his finger in the eye of the government. And so similarly here, this is, again, 1964. So you're really at the height of the civil rights movement and things are bad. And Amiri Baraka, born Leroy Jones, who had been a sort of fellow traveler with the Beats and other avant-garde poetic folks, is at this point where he's saying, no, I can't really try and be a poet like anyone else is a poet. I have to be a Black poet. If that means I'm a Black nationalist, then I'm a Black nationalist. By the late 70s, he's thinking more in terms of Marxism. Uh, but it's all part of a political evolution. And I think part of that starts with him intentionally trying to alienate his audience. So I think that there is some stuff going on here where he's like, no, I'm not going to explain it to you. The cold men in their gale, the robes, we have these like sort of chanting monks. Inside his books, his fingers, they are withered yellow flowers and were never beautiful. It's impossible for me not to see that as the fingers of an old white man flipping through the canonical works of literature and Baraka saying, no, fuck that. That actually made me think of Eliot, that line specifically. You know, you were talking about how it can be applied to other minority groups and other, dare I say, oppressed groups. That got me thinking about my own experiences as a woman. And then I was thinking, do I do the same thing? Are all of my successes in my life up to this point just to prove a point that everything going into one goal to make it so anyone anywhere can't be like, well, oh no, she doesn't deserve to be here. I'm also partially like that with my hair because I'm like, I can still be feminine and have a buzz cut. Fuck you if you say I'm not. I'm rocking it. The way he compares things, it just speaks to the internal turmoil that I feel at this point in my life and also as a woman in this period of history. Especially post-2016. Right. Like, exactly. like all the different varieties of pain? Is that what yeah. you mean? <laughs> Yeah. The varieties of pain. <laughs> we have to work um, twice as hard to get to the same place. I And that's only as white that's, people. Right. And then you also have to take into account, we're white women, you know? You have to take into account the theories of intersectionality. What is it like for African-American women, American Indian women to be held in the same hot white metal cage? Different. It's different from yeah, people. right. It's in general. Yeah, it's different from our experiences as privileged white women, but still we feel it. Yeah, Rachel, I think you're right that a trans reading of this could be really productive too. Think how generative that I am inside someone who hates me could be yeah. for for a trans reader. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I have more power than my white male trans friends as a white cisgender female, and solely because I was born in the correct body. They have to overcome so much and it's so hard to see them struggle and it just absolutely kills me because they're just living their life truly and now they have to overcome an extra hurdle that they didn't have before. Mm -hmm. I wish I could understand that perspective more deeply. I understand it to some level and I sound like I know about it a lot but I just talk to my friends. I'm just saying what they're saying. I can never truly understand mm -hmm. it. Right.
if you understand it, perhaps in a certain way, you understand it as an abstraction. You can understand these things conceptually, but it is not the same thing as living the experience, as feeling the experience, right? You don't feel the dysmorphia, hating yourself in your body. Literally, I am inside someone who hates me. Mm -hmm. Thinking of that kind of a trans reading of this poem actually also helps us reflect back on the traditional African-American studies or black arts reading, if you will, of this poem, where abstraction is both a possibility, a temptation, and also a horror, which is to say that when we consider the experience of, if you will, being inside someone who hates you, we're tempted to say things like, I am a woman on the inside, or I am a poet, not a black poet or a white poet, but a poet. We're tempted to make these abstractions about the depths of our soul that allow us to get beyond that surface. And yet living in that abstraction, which might seem to be an easy workaround, also is part of the pain, mm -hmm. right? That living in the abstraction is part of the pain of realizing many others can wield their innocence as a weapon. Many others can just sort of innocently go about their lives in their bodies as they are. And they don't have to abstract things. Or if they abstract things, they're abstracting from that very comfortable, as I said, dream outside of history, yeah. like T.S. Eliot is abstracting. But, but the abstraction of saying, I am not my exterior is a defensive ab abstraction. It's, it's, like a, it's like a way of trying to comfort oneself. But it is part, part of that, say, dysphoric experience is to say not only feeling like perhaps you're in the wrong body, but also feeling like, do I have a body? Yeah. And it's also like saying, my body doesn't matter. I'm me. I'm living who I am. But it's also the whole problem is your body. And the thing is that we are our bodies. I mean, like we aren't just yeah. our bodies, but we certainly are our bodies, right? So that, yeah. that, that is the pain of it. Cold air blown through narrow blind eyes. It's such a weird sentence. It's not even a sentence, but it's written as a sentence. The eyes are not really eyes. The eyes are slits. Like armor. That's where yeah. I got the idea of armor. But also, this is about how the speaker sees, and it's also how, about how the speaker is seen, right, simultaneously. And that narrow blind is, of course, almost impossible not to read as judgment, as prejudice, this is right below the where the God is a self after all. And we see that we see that kind of an idea come back more literally and more obviously in Somebody Blew Up America. Probably in Dope too, if I'm remembering correctly, because it's all just like a parody sermon, basically. It's like like mm -hmm. the parody sermon delivered yeah. by a raving junkie. This is drawn from uh, Black Muslim tradition. I saw him speak once and he took a moment to stop. And be like, by the way, if you're here from the nation, I'm sorry to tell you this, but somebody's got to say it, you're a cult. <laughs> and so, so he had no love for the nation of Islam. There is, of course, this tradition 
you see it in certain styles of black Christianity as well, where you get like, for instance, the black Jesus, but it's a little bit perhaps justifiably angrier in the black Muslim tradition where there's a lot of anger directed towards white Christianity for sort of forcing this notion of a white deity on enslaved black people. And so we see that coming up in Baraka's poetry where he says the god is a self after all which is to say that you know white people imagine themselves as god whether literally or perhaps just by the way they move through the world and presume their power and lord over others if you will Should I think mock for you I'm sorry what not that um closely related but Jed Smock he's um do you remember um on campus, the dude, the single dude with the homophobic stuff. I feel yeah. like every campus has a, one of these groups that comes in from the sticks and yells at people. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a follower of Jed Smock. Like he says, like he has a script that he reads off of, and they're all like, prof- they they all claim to be prophets from God, and that's why they're doing this to truly claim rights over other people. They're they're racist as well as everything else awful I can imagine. It's like you imagine like the leader of the most right wing Republicans. Well, yes, I, yeah, I'm imagining that. I'm also just like granting that there are different flavors of right wing, but maybe I'm maybe I'm being too yeah. generous. Like all right wing flavors mixed together. That's sort of that's sort of. Neapolitan ice cream of yeah of <laughs> douchebaggery. <laughs> His sign said fornication is a sin, and I'm like, boy, where did you come from? Really, <laughs> the stork. <laughs> or plot twist: What if he himself is interested in posited? Um, other and that's him projecting on himself things yeah great that's not i don't think that's too uncommon but i'm not really knowledgeable about that <laughs> well to to take this into a place that i'm sure amiri baraka would hate us to take it we might wonder about whether the overly enthusiastic white evangelical preacher is also inside someone who hates him is there some pain going on there where that person too is rubbing up against the white hot metal of all the expectations he and presumably his parents and his church and whatnot have set up for himself perhaps he too is suffering well that's possible I, th- I mean, I think it is possible. I mean, sort of in, in that same way that there's uh, the classic feminist talking point that feminism is here to liberate men as well. Men are also yeah. in, in pain. Men are also suffering under gender constructs. It's just easier for them to sort of hack it because they get obvious benefits out of the whole patriarchal system. But with the liberation of women and the dissolution of gender ideology, even cisgendered het 
can can be liberated from the pain of you know having to be a tough guy if you will you know just to put it simply and uh, you know the only the only difference is that more often than not that's a pain that gets taken out on women or yeah men, this is right? why i love intersectional feminism so much yeah and a lot of people say that's a large part of what the fourth wave is I don't think that Baraka is shedding a tear for the pain of white dudes who also <laughs> live inside uh, their own self-hatred. And yet, at the same time, I think it's fair to say that we do live in a culture that hates us all. Do you think that somebody blew up America is anti-Semitic as it was accused of being, or is it something else? Or is it anti-Semitic but has redeeming qualities? Or is that sort of beside the point? Well, I can see where people got that from, especially when you read it and it gets down to some of the later verses. But I think his intent is to obviously go more broad with it. I do see where they're coming from, but then I I also read out of it, what to me, what he was going for, and that was obviously not anti-Semitic. I think it's funny that it was accused of being anti-Semitic. It would be more obvious if people were like, oh, well, this is anti-American or anti-white, which I'm sure people said. But I think the fact that I remember it as being accused of anti-Semitism and the fact that there was a controversy over, well, is this anti-Semitism or is this anti-Israeli sentiment sort of indicates some of the way that the concept of anti-Semitism functions for conservative political rhetoric. We see political figures like Ilhan Omar Mm -hmm. accused of anti-Semitism and we see demands for them to apologize for their anti-Semitism. Well, isn't it interesting that Ilhan Omar and Amiri Baraka are both black Muslims? Right. right. And yeah. think of all the white political figures in America today who are saying anti-Semitic or nearly anti-Semitic things, things that could potentially be anti-Semitic, or saying nice both sidesy things about obvious Nazis. And yet this is the accusation that sticks. As that, a tool. Yeah, I feel like for us, it's obvious that that's a rhetorical tool. At the same time, I don't necessarily want to like downplay the fact that Baraka says and has said some nasty stuff. I just think that you have to take it in context. T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound were much worse anti-Semites than Baraka could ever even try to be. Um, Even to the point of Ezra Pound chuckling over Mussolini sending Jewish people to concentration camps in the cantos. And I think Elliot has his own anti-Semitic stuff. He's just a little bit better at hiding it. I don't, unless I missed anything, see any of it in Proof Rock. People will bend over backwards for a white poet, and especially a white poet from that era, from the, from the first half of the 20th century, to say, oh, well, actually, he was criticizing something about economics. Well, it's a critique of economics plus a conspiracy theory about economics. 
put another way, there's sometimes discussion of like black anti-Semitism as a thing. And uh, I was reading an essay in a new journal called Oak, a journal against civilization. Kind of sounds like our podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm against civilization or not, but I I do see a lot of problems with it. Uh, So I don't know, maybe something different would be nice to try. Especially in the 20th century. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I would describe these people who are working in the political idiom of a journal like Oak as being probably what you might call deep ecologists or perhaps green anarchists or... I'm sure that they have any number of different ways that they would describe themselves politically. But the the long and short of it is that like the problem is like a problem of domestication, whether we're talking about our control over animals or our control over each other, or even in some ways our control over ourselves. This essay that I'm recalling was in large part about the way that minority groups are called to assimilate and how assimilation is sort of a type of domestication. And it included any number of references to uh, Horkheimer and Adorno and one of the essays in Dialectic of Enlightenment where they talk about anti-Semitism as coming out of this apex of civilization. As German Jews, they sort of saw the German culture rise to a certain height and a certain level and then, of course, turn specifically on them. So they were very suspicious of a thing like civilization, though they in certain ways had different ways of thinking about it than these folks who are writing in Oak. Talking about that, they sort of talked about how because the original Hebrews or Israelites were among the first civilizations, maybe the first was the Sumerians, depending on how you want to slice and dice it and depending on what the robot archaeologists find later (laughs) on. But but, uh, the point is that because the Israelites had discovered monotheism, because the Israelites had discovered the sort of like ways of being a state that would then be adopted more uniformly, certainly in Europe, plenty of other places, obviously, civilization arises in any number of locations on the globe. But not all societies are civilizations, is the short way of putting it. Not all societies become civilizations, and some societies try not to. The point that this writer was borrowing from Horkheimer and Adorno was that the Jews were always suspect to European culture because on the one hand, they showed where civilization in a certain sense had come from. In another sense, in showing that they were like dangerously atavistic, like something old and strange, but then also very familiar. So you see accusations of Jews doing the very same things that Gentiles do, but like it's worse because it's a Jewish thing. These are the kinds of stories that racists tell themselves. So T.S. Eliot, who's literally a banker, right, (laughs) is is of course very anti-Semitic in his ideas about how Jewish people supposedly control banks and the money system and the economy and all that. And we see reactionaries doing this all the time. You accuse your enemy of all your own crimes. So similarly, we see this in so-called black anti-Semitism, where like actually you just have a culture that is racist, put simply, in the early 20th century, especially with the Nazis. Anti-Semitism shifts from being a religious bias to being something that's racialized. You have a mainstream racist culture, and some of that racism also includes anti-Semitism. Then therefore, you can have a dominant white culture, especially, say, a reactionary conservative culture, accusing other people of being anti-Semitic as a way of being like, well, I'm rubber, you are glue. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't have any problem with saying that there are parts of this poem that are 
perhaps anti-Semitic. I would probably describe them more as anti-Israeli. And what bugs me the most about them is that they're falling prey to conspiracy theory. Baraka is offhand claiming that Ariel Sharon knew about this attack or that 4,000 Israelis didn't go to the World Trade Center that day or that there were Jewish people watching the airplanes hit the towers and laughing about it. This is just straight up conspiracy theory bullshit nonsense. And he works it into the poem. The best that I can say about that is, well, he's a poet, not a historian. So we can say that like, okay, he's wrong. He's wrong. And anytime we teach this poem, we have to go out of our way to be like, by the way, this is wrong. The other stuff in it is right, though, where he's digging through all of American history and, and European history and, and whatnot. Like, that's obviously true stuff. And he shoots himself in the foot, if you will, by including conspiracy theory nonsense on top of that. You might call that anti-Semitic. But I think that it's still a really important poem, nevertheless. And I don't really believe that that's what pissed off the government of the state of New Jersey. I think that it was more of an excuse to find some sort of useful, protected and persecuted group to attach this to. Does that make, that make yeah. sense? Yeah. yeah. Hi, this is Frank M. Post. As we're still learning to do this whole podcast thing, I sometimes need to drop in a comment here or there to clarify something. Baraka's Somebody Blew Up America returns again and again to this refrain of who, 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 he even uses this auditory image of an owl. And as I'm suggesting at the end of that last conversation, there are at least two ways of interpreting that. Rachel and I were taking this mainly historical perspective, attempting to weigh the sins of U.S. history against the violence of September 11th, a question of who has done the most harm in the grand scheme of things. Many people, however, have taken the poem quite literally as promoting the 9-11 truth or conspiracy theory. I certainly can see why people would take that reading, and there definitely is a lot of conspiracy theory that's hidden in among the historical commentary of the text. But I would say reading it that the poem at most takes a very light form of 9-11 trutherism where it's suggesting that the powers that be, the U.S. government and the Israeli government, were aware that an attack would happen, not that they conducted it. It is worth mentioning a couple of other conspiracy theories that the poem does invoke that are prevalent among black Americans and leftists, particularly the idea that AIDS was a plot spread by the CIA or the federal government. Similarly, that the crack epidemic could be blamed directly on the CIA or the federal government. And while there's a certain case to be made for the U.S. government being at fault in those crises, it's hard to say that it makes sense to claim that those were direct operations of the federal government, unless we infer and assume an awful lot of things. It is also worth mentioning that it is far easier to believe a conspiracy theory, and it makes more sense to believe a conspiracy theory if you're from a group of people who historically have been subjected to literal conspiracies, to actual proven conspiracies, and with the African-American experience with things 
things such as the Tuskegee experiment, redlining in the housing markets, centuries of violence perpetrated and then more or less denied by the white power structure. You could see how people who had gone through such experiences might genuinely believe that the government had engaged in other conspiracies to threaten them and it would make sense to believe such things. It's also worth noting that a lot of those conspiracy theories trace their roots back to the writings of Bill Cooper, who also was one of the first promoters of 9-11 trutherism and was one of the most recent repopularizers of the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories of global domination in the form of what he referred to as the Illuminati. I mentioned Bill Cooper specifically because Robert Evans did very recently do a two-part series on his life, and also because the career of Bill Cooper sort of proves the point that I was clumsily attempting to make in the last segment. Because Bill Cooper's conspiracy theories were influential both on the right wing and the left wing of U.S. culture and penetrated both spaces such as white nationalism and black radical politics, in part because his book was very widely shared and read in American prisons. And so if I see in Baraka not necessarily anti-Semitism, but an anti-Israeli political stance, I can see that as a form of radical anti-apartheid liberationist, anti-military industrial complex politics. But a lot of people will see the same thing as mere conspiracy theory and racism. It doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. In fact, it's very likely in parts both. But where we see that conspiracy theory and those sort of racist aspects, it is interesting to note that those are not unique in any way to a black nationalist or third world Marxist political position that Baraka would identify himself as espousing. In fact, they're very broadly shared by a wide variety of fringe American political and conspiracy-minded communities. And so if somebody blew up America is indeed anti-Semitic, I certainly wouldn't describe it as a special kind of black anti-Semitism. It is American anti-Semitism. <laughs> ¶¶ 